0: From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. What's your problem? As in, what's your problem? Turns out that the simple question can be one of the secret weapons when it comes to making things better individually and with your teams, at your job, and in fact, everywhere. That's the basic idea behind a new book titled, Well, What's Your Problem?, and it's written by Thomas weddell Wettelsberg, a renowned expert in innovation and problem solving. Welcome to WLAI, the podcast of the nonprofit Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld. Welcome to our show. How does the problems change the problem
1: you solve? Uh, welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Let's kick it off. I'd love you to read a short passage from your book. It's on page 22 to give us a sense of the kind of framing, as it were, of why you think this discipline is uh, important.
1: Um, So this is part of kind of my enumeration of reasons why we need to get better at problem framing and and it goes like this. Um, Finally, reframing also matters to the continued functioning of our society. Solving conflicts in a sustainable way requires people to find common ground with their adversaries and that often starts by figuring out what problems people are trying to solve rather than fighting over solutions. As I'll show, reframing has been used to find new solutions to deeply entrenched political conflicts. At the same time, learning to reframe is also a useful mental defense system, because research has shown that framing can be weaponized. Take a careful look at how people from warring political parties talk about a hot topic, and you'll see how they use reframing to try to influence your thinking. In this sense, reframing can be seen as a central civic skill. By boosting your problem framing literacy, You'll become better at detecting when somebody's trying to manipulate you. A population more fluent in framing is a population better protected against demagogues and other people with ill intentions. And that, dear reader, is why you should recommend this book to your allies while softly slander it to your political opponents. <laughs> Thank you. And
0: I want to preface it by, by saying that this, this was not an effort to um, relate this book to current political events readers can take from that as they, as they want. But um, it's more a function of the fact that I was struck by your optimistic tone about problem solving that you note that um, a central, the basic trait of good problem solving is people's optimism. And it, you, let me ask you a very basic question what is the problem that your book solves?
1: It's that attempt to um, supply a missing link or a missing skill in problem solving, if you will. Because what I found is that people are generally good, of course, at problem solving. They're also pretty good at analysis and, and we have a lot of good frameworks for that out there. Okay. But There is that third, and in my view, higher level skill of problem framing or problem finding, you call it in academia, effectively making sure you are solving the right problem to start with before you delve into analysis. And that's just something I found uh, through my work that people don't master. Like so people may know about it, they may have some Einstein quote they'll throw out there. But when you look at the nuts and bolts of this, we don't have very like compared to the really, really strong, solid frameworks we have around analysis, there's nothing really comparable on that front with problem framing. Uh, I I don't, you know, if if you ask me, where do you go to learn problem framing? You know, if this was negotiation, I'd say, well, there's this one-day negotiation course you could take. That's really great. Or here's a great book, Getting to Yes, or one of the descendants from that. But when it comes to problem framing, we don't really know too much about how to dig into that black box of how to do it. And so that's really what I've, what my book, Uh, is trying to solve for
0: one thing the more I read in your book the more I was struck by its um, human aspect in that it increasingly deals with the kind of messy problems that uh, emerge when one tries to take a, a kind of productive approach to problem framing and I would suggest that perhaps What's simple is nothing simple. Hmm. And that <laughs> it, it quickly becomes messy. And so two hmm. questions. I, I boil it down in a kind of five minutes or three minutes what you mean by reframing and then tell us why is it
1: so hard? Hmm. I think the 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 high level introduction. Uh, I love to just share the uh, the classic that the slow elevator problem because that's that's a good anchoring uh, kind of example to refer back to to elucidate what do we mean when I'm talking about framing versus analysis, for instance. And then I'll get into the, the 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 hard part and kind of why 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 we may not have gotten this right yet, despite having known about it for so long. So. The slow elevator problem. Uh, you are the owner of an office building. The tenants are complaining about the lift that they, 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 it's, it's kind of too slow and they've threatened to break their leases if you don't fix that. Now, what's noticeable here is that the f- problem has already been framed for you. Namely, the problem is that the lift is slow. And what inexperienced people do there is they jump straight into solution mode and say, how do we make it faster? People who are better at problem solving, they know they need to analyze the problem first, and then they ask, why is the elevator slow? But crucially, that may be the exact wrong question to start with, because there are ways of approaching this that has nothing to do with the speed of the elevator. And the classic example is, of course, if you ask a a, a wizened landlord, well, uh, they're going to suggest that you put up mirrors in the hallway in order to distract people. Uh, that example uh, is really like a very simple way of remembering what is the difference here between analysis, why is the elevator slow, versus going in and saying, is the speed of the elevator really the right problem to focus on? Or might there be a better problem out there to delve into and address in this case that people perceive the weight as annoying? So, So that's kind of I'd say that's the high level example. And to be clear, the mirror, it's not like the ultimate solution here because whether a mirror will really work depends on what's going on in the real world. If people are running late for important meetings, then the mirror is just going to be a distraction. But it is kind of capturing that essential idea of the discipline we need to get better at, namely the initial framing of the problem. Now, what you just said, I, I, I'm I'm excited by this angle around the human aspect because I, I thought about, wait a minute, like reframing isn't new. We we have known about it since the days of Einstein, Peter Drucker, and so on. The first empirical research pops up in the 60s around this. So why aren't we better at it yet? And I think part of this answer comes down to the fact that many of our existing problem-solving methods have come from a specific environment, namely the manufacturing floor. like That is the discipline that has been the... the created the bridgehead in terms of really understanding how we we solve problems. Now, if you think about it, the problems we encounter on a manufacturing floor, like suddenly there's defects in in what's coming out on the other end, that universe is a scientific universe. It it is a, a systematic rigorous process. We know to an amazing degree of exactness what happens in step five when you put a car together. And so those are what's sometimes called algorithmic problems. There, there is the, there's a clear structure or a pathway for how to solve it. Now, to be clear, like, algorithmic doesn't mean easy. Like, as you'll know, if, if you've ever tried to assemble like, a Lego model or an Ikea bed, or like, God forbid, a Lego model of an Ikea bed, like, that can get really complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But essentially, these are, are, they are systematic, rigorous universes. Now, in that context, reframing doesn't play that big a role uh, because we know what the outcome we want is. We kind of understand, okay, we have to track down what went wrong here. That, though, is only one type of problem. Like many, many, many of the problems that we face in reality, sometimes also in manufacturing environments, they're human problems. They are fuzzy. We don't have an exact kind of guideline for how to do this on a systematic basis. Like they, they are... I like the word heuristic problems like think of raising your kids or think of kind of putting together a, a good business strategy or like driving a team to, uh, so it performs optimally uh, those are not linear structure very well structured problems they're messy and that means very often that there are many different ways of trying to tackle them so i think that's when when you ask why is it so hard why have we not been better at it I think that's the part of that explanation is historical I'd, I'd be curious to hear your own kind of I mean with your with your knowledge of of lean and everything what, what's your take
0: I think that categorizing it as kind of a manufacturing domain issue is Uh, I would push back on that label Mm. and I I think, above all, it's a cultural challenge. And I think you can see manufacturers which historically have analyzed um, problems and made decisions in a very top-down, kind of coded, pre-existing way. Where they make decisions that are are st- structured to support existing values. Um, something like uh, um, Roger Smith at GM deciding that robots are the answer. Hmm. You know, that's just a, that's just an edict. And I think you know he was making a type of decision like that at a time where Toyota was kicking everybody's ass Mm -hmm. by making countless daily decisions about how to make better cars like less expensively with higher quality Mm. by engaging the people who were doing the work in improving the work and that was um, you know the foundation for their ability to do that was based on a culture of problem solving I mean, I think there's altitudes that we could fly at with this because I think that to go global for a second, in the greater economy, it's very much what this journalist, Rana Farabar, describes Mm. as makers and takers, Mm. that we're increasingly oriented towards financial engineering and massively, you know, extracting massive amounts of capital Immediately, in the short term, mm. which is the kind of solution, as opposed to patiently understanding how to make better things daily. Yeah. Uh, so uh, to actually creating profits by creating value as opposed to extracting them. Mm. Um,
1: so so, so I, So what I what I love right now about this conversation is that we are like applying this meta perspective to reframing. Like, what is the problem of problem solving? Right. And what I'm hearing you say that a couple of reflections. I think you know the the top-down approach ai is now the solution like that's a very typical pattern that somebody has fallen in love with a solution and is now like pushing that down over everything which is uh you know inherently problematic it i think it can make sense in some contexts where you like you want to explore what ai can do for us and so you assign part of the business and say folks let's dig into this the second it becomes uh an intended panacea to everything, then you start misapplying it uh, to, you know, or or not understanding what to solve. I think, yep. Well, Uh, yeah.
0: I think, I I don't want to get too meta, but I, I guess the question I would ask is, does this reframing approach run the risk of becoming another hammer that gets applied to all problems? So. Let me back up before, you know, let me ask you to once again kind of tell readers what that real listeners, what that really means, um, reframing. Yeah. And then address the hazard of, say, defaulting to it as. Of the hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the,
1: uh, the hammer, I, I think it's such a useful. Uh, metaphor, idea for remembering the dangers in some of these areas. And I, I, I love going meta, by the way, so let's please do that. Uh, I think fundamentally reframing is the practice of going in whenever you have a problem. Instead of solving or even analyzing that problem, you start by challenging whether you are understanding the problem correctly from a framing level, like that question of mm-hmm. Do we need really need to solve for the speed of the elevator, or might there be a different way of approaching it? Can this become another hammer? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I I like to think about what's our goal here? It is to enable more efficient problem solving uh, and, and effective problem solving across whatever we're dealing with. And sometimes you don't want to go in a reframing direction. There are many problems we solve perfectly well without reframing. And I I tend to joke that. You know, if you happen to know people who are coaches, they can sometimes over-apply that lens. You go up to them and say, hey, by the way, do you know where the coffee machine is? And they go, what's your real problem? (laughs) It's kind of a, there's a point at which you just want to know where the coffee machine is. (laughs) uh, What I think is essential here with reframing is to understand that it can be a very rapidly applied practice because what is the danger of the hammer? The danger of the hammer is when you use, try to use it for so long that you lose the opportunity to change course in, 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 a, in, a pro, in the appropriate time frame meaning if you think every problem needs to be reframed and you think the solution is to go off two weeks to the mountains and think deep thoughts well that 's going to be problematic you 're going to waste a lot of time and resource you 're probably going to get stuck in paralysis by analysis whereas if you can practice the idea of reframing in increments of, you know, 10 minutes, literally going in and being very focused on trying to challenge our understanding of the problem and our assumptions about it, then it is, it is a hammer that doesn't, it's not that expensive to use. And I think that that's what I've, I think you asked earlier, why aren't we better at using this already? I think it's that misperception of the, like the notion that reframing necessarily has to take lots and lots of time. That famously misattributed, quote, Einstein quote, which he never said about if you have an hour, spend the first 55 minutes understanding the problem. No, that, that's a recipe for paralysis by analysis. That, that's, that'll be a disaster.
0: So uh, earlier you mentioned uh, talking about how this relates to lean. Um, and you, uh, we, we, you have John Shook's book *Managing to Learn*, which really details um, his uh, understanding of the A3 process, which he was mm-hmm. taught while working at Toyota. And it strikes me that in, uh, for productive problem solving to happen on a regular basis, there's a number of preconditions that have to exist. Mm-hmm. So you need managers who are oriented to practice um, what Ed Schein calls humble inquiry, which you Mm -hmm. cite in your book. Um, You need kind of trust and patience and a willingness to uh, experience great progress through small steps. And um, again, as managing to learn shows, an orientation to frame problems as gaps between Mm. a current state and ideal state, and then express it in an an improvable manner. Mm. And my question is, what do you think are the essential prerequisites for useful problem solving to to happen?
1: I think what you just mentioned, those things are correct. And I know you've, you've had Amy Edmondson on earlier, right? Have, having that, not just the trust, but also the willingness to challenge each other to, while, while feeling you can do that safely. Um, the, the key I found here is to not try to boil the ocean because I found there are some people who start by saying, well, in order to get this right, we need to change our entire culture of the company. Right. That makes it a very difficult problem to solve because cultures, you know, that, how do you do that quickly? What I've seen work well is to start figuring this out uh, in much, much smaller units where you get your the people you work with on a, like your closest couple of colleagues when you start getting them aboard because there you have much greater leeway to start creating more of a, you know, the psychological safety, getting a, a the, the the inquiry kind of, attitude for you can lead that personally and then gradually building out from there starting to do it with another team you collaborate with a good deal potentially with a client you have a trusting relationship to and so on so so i think that that insight helped me understand how to integrate it properly and even ideally like start where you already have a trace of those things instead of starting with the team that's furthest away from the goal start with one that's pretty close so you start seeing okay this is the point of the method how do we make it work in our world and then trying to build it from there
0: so uh, lean practice or phrase is to start with a model line is to get it going in in one place and then uh, build on that
1: uh, and I, I I would also say you, you mentioned here uh, this notion of gaps like the current and ideal state uh, that is a very powerful approach um, what 's interesting to me is that those things tend to be relatively easier to define if again if we are in what I think of as the manufacturing environment not not easy but at least easier whereas if you look at human problems um, I don't want to say that manufacturing problems aren't human problems. They are as well. Uh, well, the psych, one of the psychologists I talk about, Steve DeShazer, found that people in who enters a therapy session for the first time, in two out of three like, cases, they can't actually explain what their goal is. And so, of course, before you talk anything about reframing, getting those basics in place and just saying, okay, like, you say you're unhappy (laughs) you you know let's talk about what a more specific goal might be here uh, and 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 what that gap is so i think there's a huge value with fuzzy problems before you get to the reframing part just going in and and framing it clearly and being clear about what what is our goal here well how do we think about it
0: right right just to play a, a cheap trick um has reframing how has reframing helped you personally are there (laughs) problems or approaches that you've applied this to
1: not nothing nothing cheap about that trick i feel uh i mean the most immediate example is probably uh the book itself uh when i you know when i started out with this i figured we need to have everything uh, in this book, there's like there's research and practitioner experience uh, with reframing from almost any field you can imagine that's delved into this issue of how do we frame problems better. And I started out classically, you know, being academically oriented. I said, okay, how do we get everything in here? Then, luckily enough, uh, the way I developed this is through uh, over a period of roughly seven years kind of working with companies, trying to solve real problems and and, and frame those problems correctly. And it just became super clear to me that my challenge was not to put everything in, but to strip almost everything out. Because I found the second you make the the process or the framework too complex, it just gets used a lot less. There's almost a spectrum here from very rigorously taught and systematized processes that experts can apply that can be immensely powerful. And then to the other end of that spectrum where it's something that you don't need special training for. You don't need to have taken the Six Sigma, uh, whatever color belt you want. You know, you don't need all of, all of the setup and the expertise there. You just have this one thing that you can potentially apply in a meeting on a Wednesday afternoon with, without a lot of preparation. That was the problem I wanted to solve more because I felt in that first end, the, the systematic end, we have it covered fairly well. Like if you've got a good lean practitioner in the room, they're going to catch this probably. Whereas the vast majority of people and the vast majority of the problems they solve, that's not the context, that's not the resources we have. We have to figure out how do we make this viable to teach really broadly in a manner where, where non-experts can get this
0: existential question facing lean and the lean movement is how to teach it and how to sustain it that is how to build on the gains that people have um, reaped from it because it's very much i think a human challenge it's just really hard to uh, Mm. teach what it is in a way that people see the relevance to their daily work and become not just compliant but willing yeah and really energized to own it now that does happen and and that's i mean the folks at LAI feel like we're on a mission hmm. <laughs> and i mean we all to a person deeply believe in this and I, I i it's just very hard to teach and to teach in a way that people apply it and 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 build it yeah. so i guess my question is yeah can i don't know one way of getting at this is where have you had useful failures in <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you, i mean your your book makes an argument by sharing 100 percent successes and solutions and ahas. so where did you encounter resistance or frustration that hopefully proved useful
1: (laughs) I, I, I mean all along the way because I had the pleasure of sitting in with both individual teams sitting and struggling with it and I could sit and see oh wait we're getting off track or we're falling into rabbit holes or you know and also on a corporate level, there, there are a number of my clients where I've kind of tried to uh, cascade it uh, to a much larger group, like training 300 people in it, but then, then are supposed to, to give that training further down. And I'd say the last problem is the one I've struggled the most to solve. Um, I, I, I think there's a couple of interesting things here. One like you say. Well, we go out. What what are we doing in in the space that we're sitting in? Are we really sharing new ideas with people? In my in my view, to reframe that, I'd say we sh- we're sharing old ideas with new people. So so one of these things is to draw and all the existing knowledge we have and figure out how do we dis- distill the best practices from that that are already existing and get it out there. And so one of the things I've I've figured out was necessary was, well, you give people the tool, the methodology, but you also create space for them to figure out how do we start using it in our context and given what we already have. So there's an integration job that I think many frame, other tools and frameworks are blind to. They're just like, oh great, here's, here's the hammer, go for it. No, you actually have to give people time to figure out how to modify the hammer and how to use it uh, in, in their context. One other thing I found, and this is the sustaining thing, which to me is really interesting. I started with professional problems and I ran into that challenge that, okay, we worked through a professional problem. And then when I revisited that client, uh, you know, two months later, I didn't really see a lot of evidence that they had latched onto it, Uh, same mistakes they were making. What I found to be crucial beyond all the, 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 the tools we know about, oh, well, you have to create processes, you have to train somebody in it, what yada, yada, is actually to move it over to a completely different domain, namely the personal. Okay. What a breakthrough for me was when I started, in, in teaching people this, I, I, I have like a core module of two and a half hours where I teach the methods to people. We actually start by applying this to personal problems. Okay. So I deliberately say, forget about work for a second. Tell me about an issue you have with your kids. Like right now, it's COVID. You're homeschooling. You have like whatever that is, and then you t- you train people on those. What I found is first, it brings it home more effectively than if it's just work. You want you you want to do the work problem as well, but but later. But crucially, you start to get people into a mindset where they apply this to all of the problems they run into. When when they think, well, my wife and I have struggled with something here. Maybe we should think about what the problem is and do that together. Or we have this issue <laughs> with the neighbors or like whatever it is, these very small quotidian problems. Right. Once you can get people into the habit of just taking that step back and say, wait, do I understand this problem correctly? Then you are. Then you are on the way there. But what, what? What have you seen? What? What would you say well, in terms me, of that sustaining challenge, or other reflections?
0: Let Let me put pause on that for one second. I I, I did want to ask you for a, an example or two, because the, your book has some, and just to again help somebody understand how this applies, say, in reframing a a, a personal problem.
1: Hmm. Um. I have a good friend, uh, Tanya Luna, who is uh, the surreal name. She's married to Brian and early in their relationship, uh, they're married. They, uh, they had a lot of fights uh, fights over inconsequential things, great marriage, but that was just a big issue. Like who walked the dog, who handled whatever, those things. And, um, in the beginning, they were kind of doing the classical Freudian thing of saying, well, what's really going on here? Well, I'm from a different culture than you. We were tr- like raised in different ways with different people, personalities. And all of that might have been true, but was not really helpful. Uh, that, that those things are difficult to change. What made the difference here was uh, Tanya's observation of a, a, a bright spot or, p- or positive exception in this, this uh, like root cause analysis thinkers are familiar with too they suddenly had one morning where they had a discussion around a normally really sensitive topic and it was painless. And so that prompted Tanya and Brian to recognize that part of the problem might be different styles, personalities, backgrounds, But part of the problem was they tended to have those discussions after 10 in the evening when everybody was tired. Like, you know, that old advice you sometimes get Mm -hmm. from your divorced uncle at a marriage, kind of like never let the sun go down over your anger. Horrible advice, (laughs) like, uh, because that means you have fights at that or conflicts at that point where they turn into fights. So super, super simple example of how... A, you can have struggled with an issue for a long time. Like we all work around with problems that we tried to solve before. We haven't made headway on them for months or years. And then how sometimes by questioning the nature of the problem, like by trying to identify different aspects and framings of it, you can make like radical leaps at times. Like, and Tanya Luna will tell you, they literally solved something like 80% of their problems. They just disappeared. They still had some. But like an eighty percent reduction in in the tough fights, that's amazing.
0: And it was simply a question of reframing by asking the question: Is oh, what are the uh, circumstances for these fights? When do they happen? And might there be something, other things contributing to them? And if and can we have them at a different time when we might be more disposed to resolve them?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and interestingly enough, that particular problem. I saw replicated almost exactly in a professional context. I work with an innovation team that the, their big problem was they their team spirit was being destroyed by these fights they had over which ideas to kill. Okay, uh, and when I spoke about it, it turned out well. They were scheduling those for late in the afternoon uh, instead of kind of handling it uh, like either right after lunch where people are stocked up on on kind of protein or or something similar. So so. That brings into something else, of course, once you start getting this problem literacy or framing literacy I'm talking about in the personal domain, you start seeing the same patterns, of course, in work problems because they are not always that fundamentally different.
0: So develop a problem literacy, which you mentioned in the book, which I yes. I think is brilliant. Um, and I, so I, to circle back to your question back to me i i think it's important to understand something taiichi ono who was a developer of the toyota production system wrote when he called it nothing more than the application of powerful common sense hmm. applying this systematically over time is a profound challenge but ultimately one needs an environment where people are willing to Mm. let their guard down and be willing to and and trust each other Mm. enable the best approaches to emerge from collective thinking. And I think that my experience with Lean has showed me that the kind of patient, humble, daily work just it's a flywheel that Mm. absolutely builds and self-reinforces and that you that's how you create value for customers which in turn creates value for valuable companies Mm. and um i think it does start at an elemental level and people who have been shown that they have a, a voice and a stake it's mm. combined with what Amy Edmondson writes about, which is psychological safety. Um, because I think that the hazards of any prescribed problem solving or improvement approach like that in your book or like Lean um, is that it's implemented by uh, solution bringers, mm. by authoritarian kind of male type of thinking in which people tell others how it is, yeah. and it's it's a tough contradiction, though, because uh, you know Toyota. Can, I, I've I've read that it it has been brutal. It it deeply abides by its principle of respect for people, mm. and yet that doesn't mean always um, asking polite questions. It, 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 there's a, a, a flip side of a, a a very challenging aspect to it yeah okay. where respect is about asking people to do the best and so yeah in fact I think the difference one difference between what I've learned of lean and what I saw in your book is your, your book's more optimistic your book is very kind of um Hopeful in terms of having a way to help foster more productive um, problems to to uh, more productive solutions to tough problems, Um, Mm -hmm. and I I think one thing I would want to see more of is uh, more operational methods and mechanisms. Yeah. Um, Like so, I guess it's I'm rambling, but are there Prescribed methods and, uh, you know, contextual tools Mm. that support what you are writing about in your book.
1: I tend to say that um, there's a lot of those. And it's really a question of exploring. So the back of my book, I have a good deal of references in it. Um, they're on they're online as well. If you don't actually, you know, the, if your listeners don't actually want to buy the book, uh, it's it's for free on uh, on the book's website. Um, tell them tell them the website, please clearly. Uh, it's howtoreframe.com. reframe.com. Uh and uh, I I think a couple of reflections. I think that optimism is interesting because I had a conversation with people in the political space, for instance who are very like, wait, I know what reframing is, but I've always thought of it as the weapon. Like, this is how we spin our solution to be chosen in front of the the opponents. Versus this, which is a constructive approach, which is like, how do we collaborate to really understand the problems and and then hopefully solve them together? Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think the the key book on that is by Lakoff. Don't think of an elephant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Exactly.
0: But he's not presenting it as a weapon he's I think he's more going backwards and and assessing um, you know how this has become so prevalent
1: yeah and I well I I think Lakoff's book is really interesting because he's as you know he's he's a kind of self-declared liberal and he, he almost like wrote that book to a liberal audience saying, hey, folks, the conservatives are really good at using this. We need to get better at it. <laughs> so so I'd, I'd say overall, that's the framing. But when you then get into it, yes, he, he has a, uh, you know, what, what you might think of as a constructivist, hopeful, hopeful approach. Um, I do think there's something to your reframing about what, what is the essence of getting this right. It's so easy to think of these things as processes, like, oh, we need to have a process for a reframing. I think you should, but equally we're talking about a cultural challenge, about a local culture challenge in your team, and ultimately maybe what you're saying about identity, like who who do we want to be, how do how do we want to move forward in the world. Having said that, I would say there are also tactical challenges. It's like one thing is getting this right with your team and those folks you can work with on a day-to-day basis with those incremental improvements. Right. On the other. And there's a situation where you run into a new client and they are like, hey, can you do the solution for us? And you need to make them step back and, and reassess their problem. And I think there it's legitimate to go in more tactical and like, how do you handle that? Well, one of the things I wanted to do with the book is actually to legitimize the method. So so people who know what this is can go in and say, hey, there's a Harvard book on this and hey, take a look at this and this is why we want to talk to you about your problem instead of just going out and delivering that solution you want. Right. So, right. so legitimacy to me is one of the, the, the big issues I'm trying to solve for as well.
0: Excellent. Um, so I'm going to ask probably for the third or fourth time and forgive me for this, but... Again, if, if, if what, what should people do? Is there, yeah. is there one question, a set of questions? What are the most effective ways to um, put the advice in your book to practice? Yeah.
1: I'd say uh, at a very high level, think of this as a habit. And the habit is the following. Whenever you have a problem that isn't immediately yielding a solution or whatever, then you do the following. First, you just state the problem. like Write it down separate from the solution you may have in mind. Then you gather a couple of people and you ask them to challenge your thinking on the problem. Not You deliberately tell them, don't try to help me solve this. Try to challenge my thinking here. Try, try to come up with different perspectives on what really might be going on. Do we understand our goals? Do we understand the other people who are involved here and their problems or whatever is going on? And then at the end of that process, you want to figure out, okay, what's our next step? Because that again, especially with smart people, we can get stuck too long in that thinking phase when it's really about getting a quick jab in, in like into the God of your assumptions, if you will, and trying to, to check if we are wait, I I, you know, I became got tunnel vision, and focused on the speed of the elevator instead of asking, wait, what are the tenants actually really trying to achieve? Are they just whiny or are they running late for something important, which are very different types of problems to solve for? So that habit, like when you run into a problem, frame it, gather a couple of people to help to challenge it, and then figure out how do we move forward and keep momentum in the problem solving process.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. And I, I think the biggest takeaway I had from I, and I did I I edited that uh, John Shook book managing to learn, and working with John was just a masterclass in understanding this. And and the big takeaway for me was to work uh, backwards, not forwards, with problems, mm-hmm. and that um, rather than <laughs> try to get validation by solving it quickest and and best to really work what they call the left side to just mm-hmm. do the hard work of better understanding the problem. Um, bring in other people to challenge your thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and and I think the third piece, which I think is operational or tactical is to work on uh, clarifying the gap you're trying to close. Yeah. and find a way to express that gap in improvable ways and doing that work can often point you in the direction of meaningful countermeasures yeah and we you know the term is countermeasures not solutions yeah because the assumption is that every solution creates new problems and that's not a bad thing but um it's all about countermeasures and Mm. Yeah, so I mean, and then I, th- I think your book does have extensive operational suggestions and you talk about coming up with numerous options, for instance. And mm. I mean, you, you, you have a, a number of,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, I, I want to touch on something you bring up here, which is when you say this is an issue of, okay, how do we actually measure that gap? Well, How do we make it tangible and quantifiable to work with? in my mind that's kind of that's where we start to get into the analysis and and more the, the solving part of the work what's key here though exactly what you said is that that loops back into the framing it's not the case that this is a three step process where you go in you frame it correctly first and then you're off to the races this is of course an iterative process you you have a th- hypothesis you go out you an- you analyze it you may try an experiment you talk to people you do the Gemba thing and then you come back to your understanding of the problem and say, given what we just did, do we need to rethink whether we are solving the right problem or not? So, so this is a process that, of course, is intertwined with all the work we are already doing pretty well. We just need to remember not to forget that part, uh, lest we can become trapped in too early in a specific solution or analysis.
0: For the sake of this podcast, I, I, I want to respect uh, length, Your, you know, both yours and the listener. I'll say that and we'll cut this out. I'm happy to stay on and, and chat more, but um, I, I think that's a good place for us to stop for the, the podcast. Um, and let's remind people, the name of the book is What's Your Problem? by Thomas Weddle Weddlesborg. It's published by Harvard Business Review Press. The uh, subtitle is To Solve Your Toughest Problems, Change the Problems You Solve. The, tell, tell
1: them the website again. Howtoreframe.com. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And I, I love that we are going meta in these discussions. I, thank you.
0: Many thanks to Thomas Weddle-Wettelsberg for this great talk about how to use questions as a means of learning and improvement. Thanks go to John Cotter, Pat Pancheck and Lori Monies of LAI for their technical and other support in producing this podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please tell a friend about it and feel free to share your questions, comments, and improvements with us at pod pod at lean.org l e a n Thank you so much, and we will be joined in next month with Professor and thinker Roger Martin, who will discuss the themes in his new book, um, When More Is Not Better. Thank you.